0: Are insane there and they sure know how to use it i've never been to mexico city but i kind of like burritos they say the spies are insane there and they sure know how to fake it folks we're in late september of 1963 90 days from the assassination of president kennedy As Patch and Shari arrive in Laredo, Texas, Pilatus has set up Patch with an assignment to find out if Lee Harvey Oswald is on the bus to Mexico City. It literally took me months of reading books and opinions on the subject of Mexico City to come up with a conclusion. In fact, when I wrote the book, I had two alternate scenarios. The reason I chose one pathway to Mexico City is evident as the chapter unfolds, and I'll talk about more of that later. As Patch counters more creepy spies asking a slew of questions, Sherry finds trouble in Dallas. Tonight, we're going to Mexico City, 1963. Here is Episode 6 of Return to Dallas. Hotel Charlemagne, New Orleans, Louisiana. Sunday, September 22nd, 1963, 9 a.m. I don't think that going to Mexico is remotely safe, Patch, she said from across the room. She turned at the window drapes. Patch closed his eyes to the table and rested his chin on his clasped hands. We've been over all this before, Sherry. I don't have a choice. Somebody wants information. I'm sure Pilatus would have gone himself, but things got too hot. He knows more. I know he does. He deliberately got himself captured in that bank, she said as she crossed the carpet. He took himself out of whatever he was doing. Or whatever he found out. Her glassy eyes focused upon him. And you really think that you can just report on this Mexico thing without someone coming after you? It's certain they will kill me if I don't do it. Oh, Patch, she said crying as she held him. Listen, I could take a bus from New Orleans to Texas. I'll get a bus schedule and then to Mexico City. I'll do as Pilatus says, then I'll come back to New Orleans. This is so very dangerous. He wiped around her eyes with his hand. I can accomplish this real quick and be back in a couple of days. The last manila envelope said Oswald was leaving New Orleans around the first of the month. Let's check out his apartment before he leaves town. 4907 Magazine Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Sunday, September 22nd, 1963, 1.12 p.m. Inside the Porsche, Patch listened through the headphones to the birds and cars passing by. The lady who owned the light brown 1955 Chevy station wagon had told Oswald a half an hour ago that she and Oswald's wife were leaving for Texas in the morning. Oswald called her Mrs. Payne. She had a plain face and dark hair. He sat up as Oswald loaded a rumpled duffel bag into the station wagon, parked next to the apartment. A stocky man in his mid-forties appeared in the backyard and then was back inside the apartment. They don't have much, Patch, said Sherry. A few tiny suitcases. Patch slid one of the headphones upward. Boxes and a couple of duffel bags stuffed with clothes. Baby beds and playpens. That's right, his wife is pregnant and they already have a little daughter. Patch saw Roswald gesture as he spoke. He slid the headphone back on his ear.
1: I have a friend in Houston and might look for work in Philadelphia.
0: He may go to Houston or Philadelphia. There's your answer for Pilatus. We'll see. Who's he talking to? Patch shook his head. I don't know. Maybe the chubby guy. Again, Patch's lids became heaviest as the conversation trickled away. Ten minutes later, he heard Oswald's wife in the background say something in Russian. Oswald kissed her as if he would really miss her. What is it? asked Sherry. Patch kept listening as Oswald, with more boxes, walked to the station wagon. His wife just said something in Russian, and I have no idea what she said. I say we come back tomorrow and verify they're leaving. Hold on, said Patch as he heard another voice. Sounds like his landlord.
1: Okay, Lee, but you still owe me 15 days rent. Half of $65. I'll see that that station wagon is packed with your personal belongings. My wife is going to have a baby, and they are moving to Texas. I will be here in the
0: apartment. Is he going to Mexico or not? He could be lying. Hotel Charlemagne, New Orleans, Louisiana. Sunday, September 22, 1963. 9.45 p.m. Patch waited at the front desk as the clerk retrieved the phone message. In his hand he held a Greyhound bus schedule. He had circled the bus route for Thursday afternoon to Laredo, Texas from New Orleans at 4.45 p.m. That trip allowed him one option to follow Oswald into Mexico. Even though Pilatus had said Oswald would more likely arrive in Laredo from Houston. The more viable plan would simply be to trail him directly out of New Orleans. Patch believed that the two options would coincide and that Oswald would be on that Laredo bus. There was a phone message for you, Mr. Kincaid, said the bald-headed clerk. I apologize, but I must have misplaced it. I'll I'll have the bellboy bring it up to your room. Again, I I apologize. No problem. Do you know who it was from? I'm sorry, I didn't take the call. Okay, send it up to my room. Patch walked over to the wood-paneled elevator. He pushed the button for the 11th floor. As the brass doors closed, he tried to figure out what Oswald was up to in Mexico City. Given his activities of the past 60 days, Oswald might attempt to penetrate certain groups. Perhaps he was gonna do that once he came back to the United States. Or, if he were going to the Cuban and Soviet consulates, he could be requesting something from them. Patch remembered Pilates' warning about staying in the shadows. He would have to document Oswald's activities and not get caught himself. The doors opened, and he walked into the hotel hallway. Still deep in thought about his trip, he knocked on room 1111. Sherry called out his name from behind the door. Patch? No, it's sweetness. The chain rattled, and she opened the door, but then ran back inside. Are you okay? I have to see what Hoss does. What? he asked as he closed the door and reinserted the chain. Hoss. See, this floozy from San Francisco ropes him into being his wife. He looked at the Western Mountains on the TV. Oh, Bonanza. Right. Oh, sure, he can love her. And then, and then. And then what, smiled Patch. She seduced Adam, and she still tries to marry Hoss. Well, damn. He fell back on the bed, still holding the bus schedule. I found a bus to Laredo on Thursday. Don't do it, Hoss, she said, leaning toward the TV. She told him it wasn't Adam's fault. Well, glory be, repeated Patch, and he set the bus schedule on the side table. You wouldn't do that, he said, imitating the TV. Oh, I still thinks she's as pure as the driven snow. Oh no, someone with a shady past, said Patch from the bed. She stood up and sat on the bed next to him. Again, she repeated what she had just heard on TV. Once you made up your mind that I was the one, then you wouldn't have to search no further, ever. Is that right? She nestled herself on top of him and kissed him. Maybe we should watch Bonanza every week. She parroted the final line. There goes one we'll never forget. Then she did leave. As they rolled over on the bed, a loud knock on the door echoed around the room. Oh no, oh yes. Patch slid off the bed and clamped his hand over the 38. Who is it? Bellboy with your message. Okay, he said gripping the gun as he headed for the door. He slid back the chain and opened the door. A thin man in a brown uniform handed him a white envelope. Patch gave him a dollar and thanked him. He locked up and went back to the room as the Bonanza theme song played on the TV set. Patch glanced at the TV and ripped open the envelope. He slid out the pink piece of paper. This is impossible. From Dr. Alexander Moon to Patch Kincaid, the time traveler. Message. You can eliminate one, except when there's two. And now there's just one. Moon. What is it? She looked at the note. Somebody's idea of a bad joke. No. The younger one. The moon of this time period. Moon got to his earlier self. Then I did come back through time. That's what happened. 4907 Magazine Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. September 23rd, 1963. 10.06 10.06 a.m. The thin-framed Oswald hugged his brunette wife and held on to her for quite some time. They moved back into the house. Patch saw silhouettes of Mrs. Payne and the fat guy inside the station wagon. He turned up the audio in his amplifier. Payne's voice was clear.
1: Well, Nashon Island is near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Two weeks. Beautiful area. Nice place to vacation, no doubt. Oh, that was just the beginning, really.
0: He leaned forward.
1: Where the hell is she? Let them have a few minutes together. I went to Vermont next, and I stopped at a college I went to around Philadelphia. I stayed at the main house outside Philadelphia another two weeks. You have time. I saw my sister in D.C. and some friends. Do you know that I was able to hear Dr. King's speech on the mall? I heard there was over a 100,000 there. More than that... I went back to Philadelphia for the Labor Day holiday. I next saw my mother in Columbus, then to Antioch College in Ohio. I graduated from Antioch in 1955. Then I traveled to Indiana. When I heard about the bombing of the Sixth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, well, I drove to Alabama to donate some money. Then I made my way over here to New Orleans. A lot of traveling, a lot of cities.
0: A few seconds later, Oswald and his pregnant wife walked around the corner with their daughter. He opened the rear door and ushered his wife and daughter inside. After some time, he closed the door and walked around to Mrs. Payne. He leaned toward the window and again said something about Houston. Patch watched the station wagon, loaded with Oswald's personal effects, back out. Oswald himself stood steady at the corner and watched them leave. Mrs. Payne turned into a gas station down the street. Patch took off the headphones. Oswald finally went back in the house. Back at the station, the attendant checked the tire pressure on one of the station wagon's tires. Do we just wait here for him to leave for Mexico? Patch pressed his lips. Our main thing right now is Mexico. We'll check the post office box, but let's just relax until Thursday. Go to the park or the beach. I have a feeling Mexico will be very challenging. Chapter 38, Lafayette Square Post Office, New Orleans, Louisiana, Wednesday, September 25th, 1963, 7.45 AM. Patch carefully crossed the Lafayette Post Office's tile floor. Later, he would buy some donuts and coffee for the hotel room. A greasy-haired man in cocky pants and a lightweight jacket lingered at one of the boxes. As Patch walked closer, he thought he had seen this man in one of the New Orleans bars, but he wasn't sure. The man pulled out a single white envelope and closed box three zero 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 six one, Lee Oswald's box. The man locked the box and smiled at Patch as he passed. "Morning," he said in a Spanish accent. "Morning," Patch answered as he stepped over to his own box. The man, maybe five foot eight or nine, walked up to the closed counter. He removed the brass key from his pocket and slipped it under the corrugated metal enclosure. Then, with the envelope in his hand, he exited through the front door. Patch inserted his own key, and when he saw an empty box, he quickly closed it. Then he hurried back toward the counter. When he saw the discarded key enter the window cover, he ran toward the exit. Once at the front doors, he casually walked outside. But as he descended the stairs, the man from the post office stood in the park, with two other dark-haired men, probably Cubans. Patch crossed the road diagonally and looped behind the statue. As he inched closer in the morning stillness, the voices became clearer. The man from the post office said he needed to cash Oswald's unemployment check at the Wind dixie on Magazine Street. Then all three men scattered across the park. Patch rounded the statue and put his hands on his hips. He tried to put the pieces together as he backtracked toward the Porsche. Oswald must have already left town, as evidenced by the discarded post office key. Patch started the car and cut a course toward Magazine Street. He was not quite sure about the location of the Winn-Dixie. As he drove and checked both sides of the road, he questioned how this Cuban could cash a check in Lee Oswald's name. He lingered in the Winn-Dixie's produce section. The store had just opened. Fifteen minutes after first spotting the Cuban in the post office, Patch noticed the greasy-haired man walked alone through the glass doors up front. At the service area of the store, he talked to a woman clerk. She nodded her head when he showed her a letter or a note. She laughed and took the check from the envelope. Patch heard her count out $33. Then, with the money in hand from Oswald's check, the Cuban scooted out the front door. Patch waited before continuing up the bread aisle. Then he also exited the store. With no sign of the man or his friends, Patch returned to the Porsche. No one had signed that check. Either this man or Oswald knew the clerk personally. By the way she nodded, it seems like Oswald had already talked to her. Patch shifted down Magazine Street to Oswald's apartment. Maybe Oswald was already on his way to Mexico. He parked the car a block away and started down the sidewalk. The house where he and Sherry had met Pilatus weeks ago stood diagonally across the street. Patch snuck around the side of Oswald's apartment house. He approached slowly and out of sight from the road. When he peered in the window, he noticed piles of rubbish, papers and junk on the floor. Oswald had already left, probably to Houston, as Pilatus had said. The smartest thing for Patch would be to get to Laredo on the Mexican border before Oswald arrived on the Houston to Laredo bus. Chapter 39. Laredo, Texas, Thursday, September 26, 1963, 106 PM. Patch and Sherry arrived in Laredo, Texas just after noontime. They nibbled on cheese sandwiches and sipped coffee at the noisy little Southland Cafe at the corner traffic light. His plan was simple. He would check the bus for Oswald and nod to Sherry by the Porsche as whether Oswald had arrived by the Houston bus. She would then mail the information to Pilatus' contact in Los Angeles. Patch would then ride the bus to Nueva Laredo and enter Mexico. He would travel to Mexico City whether or not Oswald had boarded the bus. Patch held Sherry's hand along the sidewalk near the Hotel Hamilton. He gazed up at the multi-storied old hotel with its Spanish inlays and brick arches over the windows. I'm afraid, Pat, the CIA or FBI will grab you on that bus to Mexico City. I don't have much of a choice if Pilatus' people don't get that information in LA. I wonder where Pilatus is right now. Probably in federal custody. Or dead. Got himself out of whatever operation he was in. That scares me, too. We got sucked into this by Rosselli and his money. I'm not so sure. Sully talked to somebody and then immediately sent me to Vegas. Who knows who is coordinating what, Sherry? He could be just the relay for another party. Regardless, we're in this situation. I don't care about the money anymore. She held on to him as they approached a side news store. What about Dallas? They want us in Dallas. He picked up the San Antonio Express near the open door and put down a quarter at the register. The little woman at the counter smiled and opened the register. She put the quarter in the machine as Pat studied the headline through the plexiglass. Senate ratifies nuclear test ban treaty 80 to 19. I wonder if the Russians will keep their side of the bargain. I bet you're not the only one thinking about that, he said back on the sidewalk. The Joint Chiefs and the Pentagon must be apoplectic. Apoplectic, you sound like Walter Cronkite. CBS News, said Patch, covering his left ear and lowering his voice. He smiled and folded the paper under his arm. Sherry, you check into that hotel where we met Jim Pearl, the Cabana Moto Hotel. Right. I will call you once I'm back on the bus from Mexico City. Then I'll head right up to Dallas. You have Roselli's number, McWillie's number, and DeVali's number. If you see or hear anything related to Moon or anything else threatening you, call them right away. I also have the gun. Don't give Moon any breaks, he handed her Pilatus' request. Here are two letters in the envelope to the L.A. address. Use that mailbox at the terminal. I say he's not on the bus, Patch. Unknown sweetness. She hugged him again. They just stood on the sidewalk for the longest time, a man in a tall Stetson hat steered as they headed toward the bus stop. Arm in arm, they passed a liquor store. Again, he looked at his watch at the corner café. They moved along the parked cars, back to the black Porsche, positioned across from the bus stop. If Oswald is on that Houston bus, I'll give you the thumbs up, and, and if he's not, thumbs down. You're getting pretty sophisticated with those signals, Patchy. He held her shoulders and kissed her. How will I survive two days without you? She straightened his shirt collar. You just behave yourself, Mr. Kincaid. He held her hands and slowly backed away. But as he quickly moved forward, he kissed her again. Then he walked deliberately to the bus area. She waved at him from across the lot. Just before 1.20 p.m., the red and white Continental Railways bus, number 5133, designated Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, rounded the corner. The sound of the brakes and the loud engine sent Patch's heart pounding. With Sherry straddling the Porsche's door in the background, he checked the bus's windows but was unable to see inside as the bus squeaked to a stop. His face tightened as he realized he would actually have to get on that bus. Oswald might recognize him from the post office in New Orleans or Dallas and placed a pair of reflective sunglasses over his eyes. Two drivers were on bus 5133. After a few people got off the bus, Patch handed the ticket to the first driver. The driver, Claude A. Pyatt, ripped a receipt and handed it back. Patch knew Sherry would report either way to Los Angeles. The corrugated rubber steers gave the bus an industrial smell. As he nudged forward, he formed an internal snapshot. Within ten seconds, he was fully aware that Oswald, a thin man with a dark receding hairline, had not traveled on the Nuevo Laredo bus. Up front, a young couple with distinct British accents chatted and he noticed an older man up back. Patch exhaled, adjusted his sunglasses and spun into a seat midway down the bus. In Nuevo Laredo he would need to purchase a ticket to Monterey, connecting to Mexico City. Then he headed back up front. As he passed the second driver, R. H. Thomas, He glanced at his clipboard and double-checked the manifest, but he did not see the name Oswald. Then he scampered down the steps. "'Where are you going?' asked the driver. "'Hold on.' In the doorway, Patch gave her a distinct thumbs-down sign. She saluted him. Then she checked the letter and sealed it in the envelope. She rounded the car and deposited the envelope in the red and blue mailbox. Patch waved again as she returned to the Porsche. She blew him a kiss, and he backed up the stairs. He returned to his seat on the bus, again checking for Oswald one more time. His heart continuously thumped as the driver closed the front door. He waved at Sherry, still at the Porsche's door, as the bus rolled forward. The engine hummed, and the bus pulled away. When he glanced out the window again, she had driven around the corner. Why had Pilatus been ordered to kill Oswald? he slumped in the seat and closed his eyes. As the bus moved through traffic on the extended international bridge over the Rio Grande, he became fully cognizant of the risk in traveling to Mexico City. Oswald might have gone by plane or car. Plattis insisted at the point of death that Patch find out about Lee Oswald's activities in Mexico City and whether he tried to travel to Russia via Cuba. That meant watching both the Cuban and Russian consulates, and that put him in danger of U.S. operatives as well as Pilatus' killer if he did not report what he saw. Caratera, Federal 85, Nuevo León, near Monterrey, Mexico, Thursday, September 26, 1963, 4.15 p.m. Two hours into Mexico, Patch stared at a sleeping Mexican man in disheveled clothes. He questioned if he had put too much credence in Pilatus' concern about Lee Oswald. The noisy bus had at least 40 passengers, mostly Mexican. He easily passed through customs in Laredo with his tourist card and handed a carbon copy of the form FM-8 to a Mexican immigration inspector. He got close enough to the woman typing the passenger list on Mexican form FM-11. Neither the name Hidal nor Oswald appeared on the list. He double-checked that fact when he later signed the list. They inspected his gym bag and he boarded the noisy Fletcher Roja bus number 516. What lay ahead? Past Monterey and at the embassies in Mexico City. Pat stretched his legs at a 10-minute rest stop in Sabina's Hildago halfway to Monterey. Then he returned to his section on the bus. English-speaking passengers were designated in the first four seats. As the bus continued to Monterey, he listened occasionally, feigning sleep to the general conversation of the couple from England in the seats up front. They were journeying to study the Indians in the Yucatan. I'm en route to Cuba, said a wiry-haired man with a Midwest or Chicago accent through the bus noise. Patch sat up and blinked his tired eyes. I had to go via Mexico because it's illegal to travel there from the United States." He caught a glimpse of a man near 30 with curly, blonde, wiry hair. This man, not Oswald, proclaimed that he wanted to go to Cuba just as Pilatus had told Patch Oswald might try to do. I'm secretary of the New Orleans branch of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Patch opened his eyes at the lie. He visualized images of the real Oswald handing out the flyers and confronting the anti-Castro people. Patch sat up fully in the seat. Why would you want to go to Cuba? Asked the British guy as his wife looked on. The noisy children on the bus strained Patch's hearing. To see Castro if I could, answered the unknown man. In his mind, Patch called the man Blondie. Patch knew from New Orleans that Oswald played both sides of the Cuban situation. Now some man, sounding like Oswald, was headed to Mexico City because he wanted to travel to Cuba, a country that just a year ago had brought the world to the edge of a nuclear nightmare. Pilatus must have known this information. The bus rolled across the arid hills, and when he did not hear any more from Blondie, Patch slumped down in the seat. A fat-faced old British gent with a sharp British accent spoke to Blondie. Patch must have slept past the stop at Monterey because two young women, both speaking with an Australian dialect, were now on the bus. Blondie asked the old bulldog Englishman, Hey, I wonder how you say, how can I help you in Spanish? The older man shrugged his shoulders and seemed annoyed. Patch checked his watch. It was now 7.30 p.m. and he had missed the Monterey stop. Blondie stood and walked past Patch toward the two ladies seated in the back of the bus. I'm from Fort Worth, Texas, he said, introducing himself. Where are you ladies traveling from? we are Australians? They called themselves Pamela and Patricia. Where have you been visiting? What places? Oh, Washington, D.C., Miami, we stayed a week. Then we went to New Orleans, down through Texas to Laredo. I was in Japan when I was with the Marines. That's the closest I got to Australia. I would very much like to go to Australia. Maybe you will. Oh, well, I've been to Russia. Have you? Have either of you been to Russia? Oh, no. But a friend of ours, an Australian, has been to Moscow. What were you doing in Russia, asked the other woman. Patch sat up. He had the same question circulating through his head. How did you get to Russia? Did you have trouble getting in? Oh, I was studying there. I had an apartment in Moscow. Interesting. No, here, look. This is my passport. A Russian stamp? Pilatus had been told by the Russians to kill the real Oswald. Why? Patch leaned back in the seat and closed his eyes. What was so important about Oswald that Pilatus and the Russians wanted him dead, and that someone had gone to the great trouble of creating this charade? Chapter 40 Luis Potosi, Mexico, Catara, Federal 57, Friday, September 27, 1963, 3.20 a.m. And without using too much Spanish, he ordered a respectable-sized meal at the counter. Patch stepped outside. The old man from Britain talked to the two young women briefly as they prepared to board the bus. The woman named Pamela tried to be friendly with the old man. How is the weather going to be in Mexico City? I mean... What is it like, usually? The old man maintained his grumpy facade. Young man who was traveling beside you. Probably has traveled to Mexico. Also, why don't you ask him? The old man and the woman boarded the bus. Blondie returned outside. Patch entered the food area before Blondie was aboard the bus. He ordered a cheese sandwich and coffee, but wondered whether he could eat the sandwich because of his fatigue. The idling bus produced stinky fumes along the curb. He carried the sandwich across the concrete up the stairs of the well-lit bus. The woman sat in back, but Blondie stared pensively out the darkened window. Patch slid into his seat and tucked the sandwich in his pocket. Then he sipped the cold, bitter coffee as the bus engine revved. He finished the coffee and crumpled the paper cup as he closed his eyes. Fatigue easily overcame him and he slipped into a light sleep. He opened his eyes to wispy orange clouds when the bus slowed and rocked. Blondie slept across the aisle from the Australians. Patch had dropped the crushed paper cup to the floor. Someone said in Spanish that they were in San Juan del Rio. His watch had just moved past 6.30 a.m. He leaned against the window and like most passengers he decided to sleep. Between consciousness and sleep he heard Blondie and the woman's voices. At 8 a.m., only two hours remain until their arrival in Mexico City. Where are you staying? I think we'll refer to the Mexico on $5 a day. It's pretty reliable for us. Previously made several trips to Mexico. I recommend the Hotel Cuba in Mexico City. It's clean and cheap living. I I think we'll go our own way. I'm not suggesting the Hotel Cuba because I'm going there. I'm just suggesting it to help you. Blondie's voice and expressions annoyed Patch for some reason. Maybe he had just given up too much information about the real Oswald. He settled back in the seat. Although he kept his eyes closed, he did not sleep during the final two hours to Mexico City. Now he felt compelled to follow Blondie. Again, he would be careful to shield himself from both Blondie and the intelligence operatives from multiple countries. For his own protection, he would write down nothing and memorize what he had seen. The bus braked and hummed to a stop just after 10 a.m. He opened and closed his eyes several times. He slid the San Antonio paper from inside his jacket and pretended to read. Blondie's blurry figure passed by. He carried with him a medium-sized naugahyde brown bag with a zipper. The lively and informative conversation with the women had ended. Patch glanced out the window. Now he would need to follow Blondie in an unfamiliar city. He held the ENCO Mexico map in his hand. Back in Laredo, he had outlined the Cuban and Russian embassies. Then he peered out the window. Blondie approached the two women as if he was saying goodbye. Patch grabbed his own gym bag and followed the line down the aisle. The two women hailed a cab as Blondie, without a map, walked briskly down the sidewalk. Maybe he had previously been to Mexico City. Patch squeezed between a man and an older woman. The warmer air outside had a touch of smog. Blondie moved steadily ahead, within the sidewalk stragglers. At least 200 feet separated the two men. For Blondie to move so deliberately, he must have walked these streets in the past. Exactly four blocks from where Patch had stepped onto the sidewalk, Blondie entered a solid red brick building with concrete sections. The building had four floors and firm metal-case windows. A dark neon tube outlined the letters of the Hotel Del Comercio at 19 Cali, Sagona. Good morning, senor. I am Gumelio Garcia Luna, owner of the Hotel Del Comercio. His stomach jolted when he saw a Lee H. Oswald's signature freshly scrawled in the hotel ledger next to room 18. How much are the rooms? With a private bat, $1.28 a day. I'll have my assistant help you with that bag. Sebastian! Wyatt Blondie signed in as Oswald. Never mind, that's too much money. Ha ha, it is very cheap. Patch turned around quickly as the assistant appeared in the doorway. Never mind, Sebastian, this man is an American. I thought Americans had money. Patch put on his sunglasses and backtracked to the sidewalk. He thought about Sherry in El Paso. She would be at the Cabana Motor Hotel in Dallas by now. It all seemed so easy yesterday. Now he was worried. He retraced his steps toward the parked cars across the narrow Mexican street. All the while he kept looking back at the hotel. In a few minutes he had walked a few hundred yards up the road. At a small stucco wall he watched the hotel entrance carefully and then opened the map. Red letters indicated the Cuban consulate's location at Cali Francisco Marquez 160. He leaned against the wall pulled a cheese sandwich out of his pocket and chomped like a hungry dog at the bread and thick cold cheese. He stared down the street at the Brick Hotel and now wished he had checked in. Pilatus' people in Los Angeles would no doubt need this confirming information. Patch casually turned back to the hotel. Blondie, on foot, moved rapidly down the sidewalk. Patch opened the San Antonio paper and turned the page. Through his sunglasses, he saw Blondie repeatedly turning his head in Patch's direction. Patch kept his head down as if he were still reading. Blondie looked back like a squirrel, checking for unwanted predators. When he rounded the corner, Patch returned to the hotel. He checked in and then they assigned him a room on the first floor, three floors below Blondie. Then he had the owner call a taxicab. Patch held onto his gym bag and waited at the corner. He reasoned that the intelligence agencies would have both the Cuban and Russian embassies under photographic surveillance. The little green taxi with a buzzing engine rounded the corner and slowed at the curb. Hatch got inside. Do you speak English? He asked the slick-haired driver. The cab reeked of cigarette smoke. "See, si. Okay, bring me to the Cuban consulate. No, a block from the Cuban consulate. I understand. Patch leaned back as the driver lit a cigarette and spun the taxi around the street. Aside from providing information to Pilates' contact and not getting killed, Patch asked himself just what Blondie wanted to accomplish here in Mexico City. Chapter 41 Cuban Consulate, Cali Francisco Maquez, Mexico City, Mexico, Friday, September 27, 1963, 11.05 a.m. Something about Blondie meeting with the Cuban communists bothered Patch. Maybe another memory glitch had appeared, simmering and attempting to bubble up to the surface. Or maybe his anxiousness revolved around Blondie being a fraud. Patch stood statuesque behind a telephone pole. A black door on the white concrete support with the number 160 formed the entrance to the yard surrounding the light stone edifice beyond. He wanted a meal almost as much as he wanted to verify Blondie entering the consulate. Maybe Blondie had already entered the building. Patch would use his American money to get a solid meal at the Pollo Grande down the street once Blondie was inside. As he looked at the adjacent apartment building, he noticed a tiny lens poked through an apartment's second floor Venetian blinds. Somebody else wanted to know about the comings and goings into Fidel Castro's consulate. When he did not see Blondie, Patch backed away from the pole and the consulate. Maybe it was the camera or the probability of the intelligence operative scouring the area, but he sensed somebody was following him on the ground. He moved quickly toward the pollo grande. The smell of cooked chicken made him hungrier as he arrived. He pointed out a chicken corn wrap and rice mix on the menu, then he added a bottle of Coca-Cola. Fatigue set in once he sat down. Maybe he should just return to the hotel and rest. As he nibbled at the corn mix, he figured he needed to verify contact with the Cuban and Soviet consulates. He wanted to know exactly who manipulated this man for what end. Being in the same hotel as Blondie might gain him that information. The people who were paying him in the manila envelope would also want to know. He finished the hefty plate of rice and chicken mixture. Then he grabbed the moisture-laden coke and walked onto the sidewalk. The Cuban consulate was less than five minutes away. As he approached the gate in the distance, he noticed Blondie walking at a fast clip toward the next block. Patch sidestepped the embassy cameras and paralleled Blondie on the next street. Taking a camera or sound equipment into Mexico would have attracted too much attention. Blondie stepped up to a classier high mesh fence, forming a perimeter to the lush and green manicured grounds. Patch shielded himself behind a blue Mercedes. The compound had a beveled archway with a stone balustrade-rimmed balcony from the second floor. The metal-plated sign indicated Blondie had just been admitted to the Soviet consulate. Patch believed that someone in intelligence, maybe Pilates' people in Los Angeles, had a keen interest in Blondie's charade. Blondie's attempted trip to Cuba provided a rouse for somebody's benefit. Patch did not see the cameras in the adjacent building, but he half smiled because he knew they were filming this incident. Later, several people from the consulate appeared to be forcing Blondie from the building. Blondie's countenance had flipped from determination to red-faced scorn. He repeatedly shook his head as he passed through the gate and disappeared onto the side street. Patch remained reluctant to walk directly by the consulate. He reversed direction and returned to the busier part of town to hail a cab. The Oswald fraud had entered the Soviet Consulate and had also been inside the Cuban building. He had the driver bring him back to the Hotel Del Comercio. Hotel Del Comercio, Mexico City, Mexico, Friday, September 27, 1963, 3.15pm. Patch rested on the tiny bed in his first floor room. He drifted off for, according to his watch, an hour and a half. Yet his fatigue level actually seemed higher than before he went to sleep. What bothered him was Pilatus' last words about Oswald trying to get to Cuba. Maybe this operation, like the Fair Play for Cuba committee, was designed to brand him as a communist. Patch leaned back on the pillow. He placed his cupped hands behind his head. Blondie passed outside the window's metal panes. Patch whipped his body around, laced up his shoes quickly, and swept his jacket off the chair. Then he opened the hall door. Once in the lobby, he again had the owner call a cab. At the curb, Blondie moved steadily farther down the street. This time, when the cab arrived, Patch had the driver race toward the Cuban consulate. He arrived at the same spot, diagonally up the street, just as Blondie entered the side door with a guard. Pilatus' contacts in Los Angeles needed to know Blondie had entered the Cuban consulate several times. He tipped the driver, and then waited behind the telephone pole. The apartment camera poked through the blinds up the street, but even at this distance, he sensed the monitoring. Blondie had bounced between the Soviet and Cuban consulates, with the majority of the time at the Cuban location. Some type of coordination or attempted orchestration had taken place. When Patch returned to Laredo, he would write everything down and send it to Los Angeles. Once back at the hotel, he could further track Blondie's movements in Mexico City. Patch Kincaid, called a raspy voice from above and behind. You can run, but you can't hide. Your little journey in time has ended. A rifle's crack expanded outward as a bullet instantly ripped into the brick wall near his left hand. Patch immediately dove over the wall into somebody's vegetable garden as two more shots sent shockwaves around him. A bullet pinged the brick wall and another one tore into the garden soil. Machine gun fire erupted back on the street. Patch wobbled on his belly, fingers in the dirt under the bean pole leaves. With additional automatic weapon spurts, the situation spun out of control. People cried out and men shouted out orders in Spanish. When the gunfire stopped, he ran toward an alley leading away from the open lot. Sirens swept in from the distance. Patch glanced over his shoulder as he jogged toward the alley. In the brightness at the end of the alley, there were five men in sport jackets brandishing automatic weapons, all aimed at Patch. He looked over his shoulder, but heard them call out in English. We can kill you from here. Advance down the alley with your hands cupped over your head. He hesitated only for a second and then placed his hands, clasped over his matted hair. The five men, already running, quickly surrounded him. They pushed him to the ground and handcuffed him. A glum-faced man with thinning dark hair and lifeless black eyes looked down at him. He slowly placed a handgun's barrel against Patch's head. Kincaid, what are you doing here? I was forced to. No one forces a man to do anything. He shook his head. You would have been smart to do as you had been told. Who are you? My name is Carmen Belvedere. Your instructions were simple, yet you chose to come to Mexico City. It's not my fault. Don't play the innocent routine with me. Traffic was told you weren't innocent when Higgins escaped to Cuba. I don't know what you're talking about. Same story you told him at the Grapeland Heights house two years ago. I don't buy that story you went over the edge. He pushed the gun in as if he were going to thrust it clean through Patch's neck. You're going to wish you never crossed the border. For six hours Patch had been confined inside a 10 by 10 cell. He had not eaten since his capture. The cell door opened and a little Mexican in a cocky uniform with red stripes down the side stormed into the cell. He swung a knife stick and bruised Patch's shoulder before he could react folded his arms outside the jail cell. Who are you? asked Patch as he assumed a fighting stance. The Mexican laughed. I am the colonel. We know you work for Castro. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, really? You were in Cuba in May at the end of this year, weren't you? No. You know what Castro said at the Brazilian embassy on September 7th? No. Let me refresh your memory. He lifted up a crisp sheet of paper. He said... Kennedy is the Batista of his times, the most opportunistic American president of all times. United States leaders should think before they are aiding terrorist plans to eliminate Cuban leaders that they themselves will not be safe. You support what he said, Mr. Kincaid, don't you? He swung the knife stick but Patch backed away. The little soldier motioned toward the opening and two grubby-looking soldiers entered the cell. They backed Patch against the cinder blocks and then the first one smacked Patch's face three times with a knife stick. Patch passed out briefly and fell to his knees. Blood covered his cheeks. Now you listen to me, you American son of a bitch. You met with Castro and Lisa Howard when she interviewed Castro. I don't know who she is. The colonel kicked his face and his lip exploded in blood. For eight hours in private with Castro. He bashed the knife stick against the palm of his hand as he paced. Because that traitor Kennedy is wanting to be friends with Fidel, and Fidel wants to negotiate with him. I was not in Cuba. You must like pain, said the soldier as he gripped Patch's bloodied face. Lisa Howard sent a message that was intercepted, requesting an official of the U.S. government on a quiet mission to Havana to hear what Castro has to say. Is this true? I don't know. She said that a country as powerful as the United States has nothing to lose at the bargaining table with Fidel Castro. This is insanity, goddammit. Castro is to be killed, not to be negotiated with. They dropped his body to the floor. Someone again kicked his head. You are aware of Ambassador Atwood committing treason with Lachuga. They lifted him up again. You will answer me. I don't know any Atwood or the other man. Kennedy is instructing Atwood to have secret talks with Fidel. How would I know that? Because Atwood's memorandum to Harriman and Adlai Stevenson, Atwood asked for permission to establish discreet indirect contact with Fidel Castro. In a whisper he spoke to the colonel, you are torturing the wrong man. They pushed Patch into the wall and then he bounced to the dirt floor. The soldier started another tirade, but then left. The cell door closed metal tight. Patch's numb face had dried blood and swollen bones. Belvedere stared at him through the bars. Then he followed the colonel down the hall. Patch heard them walking away as he passed out. Outside light now entered the cell. A tall pipe cleaner of a man with thick glasses and a black Homburg hat smoked a cigarette on the doorway. He wore a dark suit and a dark tie. Patch felt water splash across his face. You seem to be a man with great ambition, Mr. Kincaid. He said as if he were slurring words for effect. Patch shook his head and tried to lick the water off his cheeks. Strange that you've been in Cuba since 1961, isn't it? Wasn't there water? Oh, you want some water? Shame. Sorry about that. Do you know that eight days ago, President Kennedy set in motion William Atwood's direct contacts with Carlos Lechuga? You know him as the Cuban ambassador to the United Nations. No. He pitched the water in Patch's face a second time. Patch reached with his tongue for the droplets. The man adjusted his glasses. For the first time, he noticed this man wore a white shirt and a striped tie. I have in my notebook the actual instructions to Lisa Howard. Quote, I then told Ms. Howard to set up the contact. This is to have a small reception at her house so that it could be done very casually, not as a formal approach by us. Howard met Lechuger at the U.N. in New York last Monday and brought Mr. Lechuger to meet Atwood in her apartment on Park Ave. All this is very disconcerting to those who oppose communism. Don't you agree? I know nothing about this. The Attorney General met with Atwood in D.C. on Tuesday. He said the matter of negotiating with Castro was worth pursuing. Kennedy has big plans. This is nothing short of treason. Wouldn't you agree? No. He began writing down every response from Patch. And then someone claiming to be a Lee Oswald impersonates him multiple times at the Cuban and Soviet consulates. What kind of operation is this, Mr. Kincaid? Who ordered it? Who's behind it? I don't know. The man who came down on the same bus as you, Mr. Kincaid, who is staying at your hotel. That man is a phony, just like the rest of you commie sons of bitches. Water. No water. We have control of this impersonation, Mr. Kincaid. This is very serious business involving national security. We don't need your people getting in the way of Cuban operations. You and your Kennedy appeasers. I want to know a simple thing. During the missile crisis... Did you fight the sabotage teams? There were ten of them, and you were involved with Castro, weren't you? I was not in Cuba. Tell me about Task Force W. You people knew. Patch shook his head as the man carried the water bucket out of his cell and left it far enough away from the door so that Patch could not reach it. Mr. Kincaid. You were with Escalante when he intercepted Eladio Di and 32 men in June of 62. You stopped them from assassinating Castro, didn't you? No. Tell me, did G2 know about the suppressed attack on the Orange Bowl when Kennedy was there in December? Vaughn Marlowe and the Beverly Hilton, Mr. Kincaid, and the PT-109, tell me about it. Pat shook his head. Poor Arthur and Ruth Forbes Young, Mr. Kincaid. I've heard the names. Mary Bancroft. I don't know. Shame, Mr. Kincaid, shame. Wait, wait. He shut the door and his shoes echoed as they tapped against the cement down the corridor. Another door closed. Patch again coughed as he inhaled the urine stench. The cuts on his face throbbed and he did not know why they had thought he had been in Cuba. Chapter Forty Two. Cabana Moda Hotel, Bonviant Room, Dallas, Texas. Saturday, September twenty seventh, nineteen sixty three, one forty five p.m. Sherry swung her leather pocketbook over her shoulder as she approached the front desk. The man in a red tie and dark suit smiled at her. Good afternoon, ma'am. Any messages for room ten eighteen? Nothing yet. Any long distance? He shook his head. I'll let you know. Thank you. She debated whether to drive through the city as she had yesterday. The uncertainty of not hearing from Patch kept her awake all night. She walked across the lobby and into the restaurant. Coffee would wake her up. At this time of day, the restaurant was nearly empty. One, for now, her stomach twitched at the thought of not being with Patch. Oh, you're expecting someone? Not for a few days. I'm just going to get a coffee and sandwich. Right this way. They seated her at a little table diagonal to three dark-haired men in light-colored shirts. She heard them speaking Spanish as she looked down the menu for a sandwich. The waitress poured the coffee from a plastic carafe and left a sugar bowl and creamer. Shari scooped up some sugar and it dissolved in a steamy coffee. A shadow covered the table. All three men formed a semicircular ring around her. They all had tired, bloodshot dark eyes and bristly beard growths. One of them with wavy hair and wide shoulders stepped forward. He had a gruff and emotional voice. Hello, Miss Thomas. My name is Frank Sturgis. What do you want? He half grinned. That's a question that could take weeks to answer. I don't understand. He grabbed Sherry by the shoulders. You don't have to, honey. You're coming with us. She looked back at the menu. I don't have to come with you. Sturgis whacked the menu out of her hands with a black metal luger. Get up or I'll shoot that pretty face into raw meat. Her mouth hung open. Sturgis nodded to the other two men. They lifted her bodily from the chair. He jammed the luger into her ribs. You just do what we say and nobody will get hurt. They marched her out of the restaurant and along the front of the hotel. One of the men pushed a drug-laced handkerchief over her nose and mouth. For a second she felt lightheaded. And then everything went dark. From a wide brass bed, competing with the air conditioner's hum, she heard a loud phone call outside the white panel door. Someone named Leopoldo sounded if like he were a salesman on the phone. Yes, Mrs. Orio, what do you think of Leon? No, no, he's a former marine man, is an expert marksman, and kind of loco, yes? No, Kennedy should have been assassinated after the Bay of Pigs. It's easy to do it. She sat up and climbed off the bed. The sound of the slider opening accompanied someone hanging up the phone. What did you tell Mrs. Odio yesterday? Angelo and me, we said we were members of the Junto Revolucionaria. Oswald, we told her, was an American sympathizer who could be part of Killing Fidel, so she approved of what you said. No, she wants no part of criminal activity. We made our point that she and her sister will know that we had Oswald with us, and we'll let her know we were trying to solicit money for our cause." Sherry fell back on the bed. Outside the room, they started another loud conversation. What about the draft board? Our man was up in Austin. What did he say? He introduces himself to the chief of administration, Mrs. Danville, as Lee Oswald. That was Wednesday. He said he was dishonorably discharged from the Marines and he wanted to straighten it out. He said he was living in Fort Worth. So he's doing what he is told. He always does. He was around Austin all day. He was at the track cafe and then he headed to Dallas. Macaulay and the Employment Commission met with him. Then he applied for a job at the Center Drug Company in Dallas. Right. Okay. Okay, check on the girl. Sherry fell back to the pillow and pretended she was asleep. When the door hit the wall, she sat up. All the yellow shades were drawn and glowed in the early morning light. She smelled coffee and cigarette smoke. A tall man with curly dark hair and deep-set eyes and a thin mustache passed a large glass of water to her. He was dressed in an open white shirt and cockies. Spent liquor lingered on his breath. In the dim light, he sat down in the flowery orange chair next to the wall. Miss Thomas, he said in a clear Spanish accent, it may not seem like it, but you are here for your protection. So you knocked me out just to get me in here? This place is hidden. I mean, it isn't a residential area, but it is hidden. Just what are you protecting me from? Many, many things. Right. How did you and Kincaid get connected to Interpan, the mercenaries? You know, Hemming, Hall, Howard. You know I can't tell you that. I understand. If you weren't working for them, You'd be dead, <laughs> he said, laughing. True. Shari caught sight of a slender man, black hair slightly receded, with a finely trimmed pencil mustache. He walked with a group of Cubans by the street. Who is that? I don't know him. Manuel checked outside and turned back. Bernardo de Torres, a fighter against Castro. Shari nodded. Sometimes I wonder how I got into this mess. Why did you? Money? And Patch? Let me first say, we know more than you think about Kincaid's trip to Mexico. Is Patch alright? I will tell you that he is currently in United States government custody. Oh, no. He is alright. He never should have taken it upon himself to go to Mexico. I'm sure our people down there are finding out answers, but I will ask you anyway. Why did Kincaid go to Mexico?" She pressed her lips, as an olive-skinned guy with thin slit eyes stepped inside from the front room. Manuel leaned forward. Well, Miss Thomas, listen, look, I have seen it all. I have fought with Castro in the mountains, but he is a communist. I will not tolerate any communist lies. She looked down and then realized Pilatus never gave his own name. There was a man who called himself Pilatus. He smiled. Just Pilatus. Just Pilatus. We first met him in Jackson Square in New Orleans. What did he look like? Tall guy, reddish blonde hair, always combed back with hair cream, brown eyes, was calm and level headed. This one man, he convinced Kincaid to go to Mexico. Yes, he needed to know if Oswald was on the bus from Houston to Mexico City, patch headed for Laredo. Oh, Christ, said the other man as he pounded the wall. I know who the hell he is. This man Pilatus shot up the bank in El Paso, didn't he? Yes, he did. He was trying to get out of something, people after him. Pilatus got screwed up in a plane crash years ago. He's been in and out of veterans' hospitals. He's retired from the army with a disability retirement because of brain damage. Sorry he conned you. You Seemed pretty real to me. Oh, I'm sure Kincaid should not be in the middle of this. Her stomach wrench, oh god. Nehiko City is not a pleasant place. What about Oswald? Oswald is doing what he's supposed to be doing, not your concern. Although you probably figured out he has various affiliations. Put it mildly, he turned toward the door. Rico, what's the breakfast story? Five minutes, answered an accented voice from inside the house. We'll get you something to eat. Tell us your sizes and we'll get you fresh clothes and you can take a shower. He stood up and clasped his hands together. Then what? His dark eyes focused on her. Because of the nature of the operation, you'll you'll have to stay here until further notice. For your own safety and as to not compromise the cakewalk. What what cakewalk cakewalk? Sherry remained silent as he left the room, holding onto the door handle as he slammed and locked it. She worried about Patch and Manuel's assessment of Pilatus. A younger man with a goatee unlocked the door and motioned her out of the bedroom. She stood and stretched her legs. Then she entered a large room with a stone fireplace and a kitchen overlooking prairie land. A wood-framed cathedral ceiling sloped over the stone fireplace. Another air conditioner hummed from one of the front windows. The young man who opened the door stood at the counter in the kitchen. She leaned in the rectangular opening into the kitchen. I have eggs, bacon, toast, and orange juice. Thanks. The gray counter extended around the perimeter to a Sears carpet refrigerator and freezer. Across from the sink sat a matching stove with electric burners. White towels covered the floor from counter to the slider, facing the backyard grass and the stockade fence. A few spreading oaks separated the property to the prairie. I ain't supposed to get you sizes for clothing. How long am I supposed to be here? I I don't know. Sherry looked at the colorful plastic plate and steaming eggs and bacon on the table. He placed a small orange glass dotted with moisture onto the plastic tablecloth. She pulled back the wooden chair and sat down. My size is five and my shoe size is seven. She bit into the toast coated with butter. The guy grabbed a pencil out of the mug full of pencils and pens. He wrote on a tiny white pad on the counter. Then the phone rang. He stuffed the pencil over his ear and raised the phone to the other ear. Hello? Yes? No. He stepped out. Howard? Yes. I will tell him. I will tell him, Mr. Howard, that you called. He will want instructions and additional funds. Yes, sir. Goodbye. He wrote something on the next sheet, then he brought the frying pan to the white ceramic sink. As he ran the tap water, she let the juice cool her dry throat. What's your name? He looked up and smiled. Rico. Cuban? Yes, ma'am. I was born in Cuba. Yes. And now you are in America. He dried the pan. Until Castro is removed. I understand. She crunched the crispy bacon. This is good. Did you cook it? I did. I was a chef in Havana. We left in 1959 after Castro came to power. I can tell you're a chef. He smiled and put the pan away. As he moved toward the refrigerator, Manuel returned through the front door. A camouflage man behind him carried an automatic weapon into the front room. Manuel leaned through the opening between the kitchen and the living room. Tell me something significant about Lee Oswald. She finished chewing the crisp bacon. Then she sipped the orange juice again. He was involved in training soldiers at Lake Pontchartrain. Jesus Christ, that took some doing. Did those directions come in your P.O. box? Yes. Who is in charge of your operation? We don't know. How did you get started on this post office thing? She gulped and her eyes watered. I'd rather not say. You're going to have to say. Pilatus, she lied, afraid of incurring the wrath of Johnny Rosselli. Manuel nodded and then he walked around into the kitchen. Did Pilatus have you relay any information to anyone? Yes, some address in L.A. I don't have it. Where is it? Patch knows it. He stared at her and then walked across the tiles to the phone. "'Manuel, you need to call Mr. Howard,' said Rico, scrubbing another pan. "'When did that call come in, Rico?' came in just now.' He nodded and spun the dial once. "'Operator, I need to place a clear call to Miami. "'Yes, El Cochilla.' "'Manuel turned and leaned toward the counter. "'His dark eyes darted back and forth as he thought. "'He nodded and then stood up straight. "'John, is there a Los Angeles address given to Kincaid by BPR?' "'Right.' I have been informed by Miss Thomas that Patch Kincaid has that address. They destroyed all their notes. I know what Mexico says. Then they need to understand exactly how Kostikov and the Russians feel, really. With ask you coming over? That was stupid. He never had orders to lose his temper. Right. I'll get back to you after I get back from Oklahoma." Sherry set down her fork as he hung up the phone. This is what I don't understand. Manuel pinched the bridge of his nose. I had the mother and of one of the Dallas deputy sheriffs, snooping around here. I don't need any more bullshit. What is it you don't understand, Miss Thomas? Maybe I do understand, she stood and assumed a more alert stance. We give you the information and then we're done. That's a little far-fetched. We will, however, go over in detail your complete surveillance of Oswald. Why here? You ask too many damn questions, he said as he headed to the living room like a runner breaking for second base. I want to talk to Patch. The camouflage guy opened the door and fanned the weapon as he slammed the door shut. She looked at Rico, placing the pan in the drying rack. You wish more food? What I want, senor, is the truth. Researcher John Armstrong asked this question. Show me one picture of Oswald in Mexico City. I would ask, play back one recording of the real Oswald at one of the consulates. How about witnesses who testified to observing the real Oswald anywhere in Mexico City? Why was Sylvia Duran tortured into a confession to testify the real Oswald was at the Cuban consulate, only to years later recant her statement? I've created a scene with Phillips and Howard Hunt, Not real, but certainly in character, questioning the reality of Mexico City. And most importantly, Mexico City sets up Oswald as trying to get to Cuba and later the Soviet Union. I'm Robert P. Fitton, just reminding you that this entire book leading to the fingering of Oswald killing Kennedy, there's a whole lot of framing going on. I'll be back next week. Good evening.